This program is brought to you by Haymarket Books as part of the Socialism 2022 program. You can hear more recorded sessions from the conference by subscribing to the Socialism Conference podcast feed. Many video recordings are also available at socialismconference.org. If you enjoy these recordings, keep an eye on socialismconference.org for updates about the next Socialism Conference and how you can participate. You can help support the Haymarket Project by buying books at haymarketbooks.org and especially by joining the Haymarket Book Club. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and the Haymarket YouTube channel to access all of our upcoming events. If you really want to help us out, rate and review the podcast on Apple or whatever platform you're listening on. Good evening, everyone. Um, so this is like my first conference thingy since COVID. Um, and so I might be awkward moving my mask and whatever. So if you can't hear me, just raise your hand or shout like someone did before and let me know. Um, let's take a, a temperature of the room. How many of you have read Becoming Abolitionists? Wow. How many of you are reading Becoming Abolitionists right now? And how many of you are thinking about reading? <laughs> nice. Okay, good. Good audience. Um, so, you know, what, the way, uh, I think Dana just mentioned this, I'm going to start off with the conversation. Derek and I know each other very well. It's going to be nice and light and easy. Um, I'm going to save a lot of room for you guys to get up and ask questions. So you all can start thinking about them. Now we want to make sure that this is involved as possible with the, as possible with the audience. Um, but um, if we had, you know, Derek just said to me five minutes before that she's like, let's spend the first 20 minutes talking about the NBA. Yeah. So Donovan Mitchell trade, go. Oh. No, I'm kidding. Oh. <laughs> um, no, it's funny. Our, our text threads are, you know, Usually it starts with Derek saying, "Do you watch insert NBA game?" and then catch Naomi Murakawa's talk <laughs> on this link, and then I'll respond. I won't get a response for maybe two months, <laughs> and then she said, "Do you know any movers in DC?" <laughs> and then somewhere in there is some some joke about how she met some East African person that looks like me. I'm I'm a Jaffna Tamil. My family from from Sri Lanka. But whenever I'm in DC, everybody thinks I'm Ethiopian or Eritrean, and so she finds it fun. Um, anyway, the last time we we saw each other in person was about a year ago. Um, we were in Oakland, in the Bay Area where I live, um, and we were walking around Lake Merritt on a sunny day, and you had just submitted your final manuscript for Becoming Abolitionists, final edits and all. And I think you and now were on some tour of the West Coast. We were on a road trip. Road trip. <laughs> I'm trying to link the word tour. Oh, sorry, tour. sorry, sorry. Anyway. Sorry. So, and now you've been on this tour of the book, with this book, um, in conversation, virtually and in person, with some of your heroes and sheroes, scholars, <laughs> grassroots organizers, students, general public, talk show hosts like Daily Show, Trevor Noah, you know, lots of different audiences, lots of different people. Um, what I want to know is what have you learned from engaging all of these people since this came out with your articulation of these abolitionist ideas through this book that you wrote 
about whether and how far abolitionist politics have taken root in the political and public consciousness here in the U.S. And I, I want to follow it up by you know, just asking, is this, a, is this still, this is a quote from your book, a radical fringe ideology taken up by people who are not realistic or pragmatic about social change? And I also want you to think a little bit about the um, article that was in the New York Times this week in which Charles Lowe was despairing that defund the police is dead. Hello, everyone. Hi. Hi. Wow. Okay, hello to the five of you. <laughs> hello, everyone. I am so grateful to be here. Like, it's not even funny. I'm so grateful. Thank you to Haymarket. Thank you to all the people who organize in Chicago that make things like Haymarket possible, the actual initial uprisings and the organization. Thank you for people who read and produce art and literature and bring in political education and bring it together. So I'm just so, so grateful and so thankful to be here. Thank you to you, Thomas. I'm a big detail guy left out of Thomas's bio. Thomas is my first boss out of law. Now, I don't use the word boss lightly, but he was a benevolent boss um, who, um, who I'm just so grateful of all the people who I could have started my legal career under that it was you. And I remember our first conversation saying, you know, what are you going to do? And I said, I think we should do political education as a, as a department. And you said, let's do it. And so lots of other bosses would have been like, no, like you're trying to subvert the organization. Um, but you knew that, you know, especially with us being lawyers and working in grassroots organizations, how important it was for us to develop political analysis um, so we can have a, a better place to disagree from. So thank you. So the, the footnote to that is that when I went to go talk to Judy Dianis, our, our boss, she said, what the hell? Oh, yeah, <laughs> it would be like that. Um, but thank you. Thank you for um, not getting me fired. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> wow. Yes, so I don't even remember the first question. Is, is abolition still a radical fringe ideology? Yeah, is it, is, is, and is defunded. Yeah, well, in the last year, so much has happened. So, so much. I mean, y'all been here the last year, right? Most of y'all been here the last year? Okay, we've all been here the last year, and so much has happened. The last two years, honestly, because I guess if I said that sentence a year ago, I was reflecting on 2020 into 2021. And I think it's okay. Sometimes we hear radical and fringe, and that means that we shouldn't take the politics seriously, but, but for the radical fringe imaginations and experiments of lots of people you know, in our traditions, we wouldn't have a lot of the beautiful things that we have today. So I'm, I'm grateful, grateful for that. And I think that, I didn't say that, I think that people were dismissing it as a radical fringe set of politics. I mean, Michelle Alexander admits this in the New Jim Crow. She says, you know, she saw a sign, I'm assuming from critical resistance in Oakland, that said, we're experiencing the new Jim Crow. Like, she didn't coin that phrase. Like, she is learning from organizers in the Bay. And what does she say? Who are these people? What are they talking about? They're weird, right? And now she has, like, this, like, you know, million, um, multi-million New York Times best-selling book about it. And so I, I think it's important that these radical French ideas that live and grow among our community, um, they do this thing where they break into the mainstream. And it's because people learn because people ask questions become people push because people become pushed. Um, something Niall said on the last panel, you know, in twenty twenty when when so many people on the street started saying defund the police, well that didn't grow out of the ground. 
right? That didn't come out of nowhere. Abolish the police didn't come out of nowhere. People have been thinking about prison industrial complex abolition for decades, for literally decades. And that it entered into 2020 became evidence of that work that happened. So that language, that's those set of politics, those sets of ideas, they come from radical black feminists. They come from radical white feminists who were in Norway who were asking questions about, you know, whether we should not work with Europe, whether we should have prisons in the first place. So I think it was very, very exciting to see the conversation shift um, from Black Lives Matter to defund the police. And the Charles, the, okay. Did y'all read this Charles Blow article in the New York Times? Good, don't give it more to <laughs> I didn't read it until today. Thomas texted me and asked me about it. I hadn't read it, and then I read it this morning while I was getting ready for this panel, which is why none of my outfit makes sense. Like, this is a body suit. Like, it makes no sense. I don't know. But I was so angry getting ready today. My whole back is out. It's not even funny. I was so angry reading this, this article, this op-ed from a, a black columnist who just wrote a book called The Black Power Manifesto. Mm -hmm. And the headline of this article is Defund the Police is Dead. Now what? Uh, raise your hand if you know anyone working on defund, defund campaigns. Okay, raise your hand if you work on defund campaigns. Raise your hand if you work on keep, um, any campaigns to dismantle the car state. He, did he ask any of you? <laughs> no, seriously, is that shit that makes me so mad and honestly so grateful that I'm a lawyer and a writer who comes out of social movement? Because the idea that I can write for the biggest paper in the world that defunds the police is dead without talking to any defund organizers. Nyla will be blowing on my phone right now. Like, <laughs> what are you talking about? And so it's so, it, in the middle of it, I'll spare you all of the details, but in the middle of it, he says, you know, I, I'm a realist. I know when I'm trying to explain a position and I run up into a wall, I have to pivot. Well, you can do that because you're, just, you're a writer with no accountability to movement. You're not part of social organizations who, okay, people are confused about defund, let's teach them. People are concerned about community-based violence, let's do the Healing and Justice Center in, in, um, in, in Miami, Florida that Dream Defenders is doing. Asha is working on a campaign right now with a bunch of other organizers in Chicago to have non-carceral responses to people who are in crises. There are all these campaigns that are flourishing that's in response to people who are concerned about defund the police. But, oh, it's the eyes of the bad. Thing or socialist project you may miss, but that doesn't mean it's not happening. 
So to declare defund debt, like eighty five percent of the people in this room raise their hand to know that it's living. Was it it pissed me off. It pissed me off. So I'm trying to figure out like should I like write a response, should I go to his house? Like I don't even know. <laughs>
why did you try to, or why did you choose to write this political education on abolitionism in this way, where you're weaving together some really deeply personal stories with the historical and analytical and politically provocative? Because this isn't just a polemic about how the carceral system or policing is destructive. Um, and actually, it's not even just a vision for an emancipatory future, even though it's funny to say just a vision for an emancipatory future. It's, it's really into it. So what, what, tell us a little bit about why you chose to write in this way. Yeah, it takes up your questions, too. Sorry. <laughs> no, that's good. That's good. So why political education? Do y'all know who Robin D.G. Kelly is? <laughs> I don't know. You got to ask. So Robin D.G. Kelly is one of my favorite people. Not because he's a Pisces, uh, very charismatic, but because he's also brilliant. And I remember the first time I met Robin, I was in law school. I, this is just after the, I'm from St. Louis. It was just after the Ferguson uprising. I was in law school trying to like do the right thing, learn how to be a good lawyer. And Robin was on a panel with three people from St. Louis, three like triple OGs and black grassroots organizing. Percy Green, Jam um, Jamala Rogers, and actually the, the other person was George Lipsitz, who's also a phenomenal scholarly thinker who a lot, a lot of his work is about um, black grassroots organizing in St. Louis. And Robin's on this panel, he keeps saying political education, political education, political education. And so I was like, oh, that sounds really important. <laughs> so I raised my hand and I was like, okay, if you're saying that people in our generation need political education in order to go do the work, then what should we read for our political education? Like, can you give us a syllabus? Like, what's the guidance? Like, can you help us out? And he said, no. <laughs> and I was like, what do you mean, no? Like, you keep saying we need this. And he was like, well, I can't tell you what to read for your political education. Say, so your political education is going to come through the movement, the organizations, the people you're building with. And y'all have to determine what text, what pieces of art, what debates you need to struggle over. And that's going to inform your strategy, your relationships, how ultimately you get free together. And I was like, what kind of cop-out answer is that? Like, I'm like, them niggas don't know how to read. How am I supposed to know how to read? And you know what to read. You're a whole historian. Like, what? Help us, please. And so he was just like, no, I can't do it. So I was really angry. And then um, I went to South Africa went to South Africa. And the students there were reading. They were reading a lot, a lot, a lot. And then they would show up to their movement meetings and debate what they were reading. And then after those debates, it would inform their demands that they would have on you know, the university and ultimately on the ANC, who was in power, is in power. And it was blowing my mind the level of analysis because the student movements that I was a part of, the broader social movements that I have belonged to, there were people who were like reading and people were being smart and people were like, oh, you know, throwing out Fanoni and lines at each other. All of that was happening, which was great. But I realized that I was a part of a lot of groups who, um, and this is true about most of my, I've been a student organized since I was like 14 years old. A lot of us had uh, a lot of passion and we wanted to do the right thing. And we thought it was enough to like have good intentions and like be smart or have good ideas. But here you had all these students who had lots of good ideas, lots of passion, but also were again deciding how to disagree, you know, in a way to then inform their analysis, in a way to then inform their their struggle. 
I know it's beautiful. And so I was like, this is what Rodney is talking about. This is why it's important to figure it out. Because the sets of political text you're going to be engaging with is going to vary based on what movements you're in. There are lots of things that I would probably consider foundational, but they really should. The world is vast, especially if you have internationalist commitments. There are so many political texts I can't even read because I don't speak Arabic, right? And so there's, it, it, it's so fast, so vast, it's so, so, so important. And I think from that moment, whenever I'm in a space I, I, and we try to do work together, it's like, well, what's the foundation for our work? Because I can be saying the violence of police, and I found this out when I was uh, working with the Ferguson Collaborative. After law school, I went back to St. Louis to work with a group of community organizers in Ferguson around policing. And I was saying abolition, and they were like, girl, what are you talking about? We're not trying to abolish the police, you're trying to reform the police. I was like, oh yeah, we need to do political education together. Y'all need to suggest some stuff, I'll suggest some stuff, we'll read, and we'll debate, and we'll figure out how to move forward together. And that didn't mean, oh hi! Um, that didn't mean, sorry, I got distracted. That didn't mean that, didn't mean that um, we couldn't um, work together even though we had different analyses. But all the people who were showing up to those meetings were trying to figure out, like, how do we move forward, you know? So that was, like, so impactful to me. And I've been lucky to continue that work, you know, through classes at the People's Forum. The People's Forum has been amazing because they do classes just for organizers to figure out how do we disagree. Um, Haymarket has tons of series um, that are rooted in political education that groups not only attend but host. Right, and so they're doing series together. The Dream Defenders we read together. So it's it's such an important part of our work to inform our analysis to help shape the you know what's the direction of work. So I want to I want to riff on this a little bit more because okay. there's a there's another there's a quote in there from from Nile actually which I like oh. a lot. Shout out to Nile. Um, <laughs> a person's political journey is dynamic as the social justice movement itself. And I want to we talked a little bit about the the, the personal part or the the local part about that. I want to talk about the movement-wide part of that, about this, because in some ways, this Charles Blow article, right, is making all sorts of gross assumptions about about the conversation around policing and, and police violence and safety and defund and all that. Um, what do you? What have you seen? I mean, especially in this year when you've been talking about this book and and, and out there in public about it, um, in terms of the shift in the national conversation. Mm -hmm. And also in terms of the effective strategies that are either needed or being implemented to reach that, to do that political education on a mass-based scale. Because we, in our the previous conversation with the Dream Defenders, yeah. I think you started touching upon the need for that. Even Dream Defenders thinking through as an organization the need for a national level work. Yeah, I think there's a lot of different answers. So I actually disagree with what Naila said about us and I have, I love you, but I disagree <laughs> about you know our movement or our organization is not having an answer to people who ask in our communities, what about black on black crime? What about black black on black violence? In many ways, people in those communities, they have answers to those questions themselves. They'll say, you know, these kids, they kill each other because they, they, the school districts don't care about them. They kill each other because they ain't got jobs. They, there's already so many levels of analyses within our communities. It's like, okay, well, how do we use these analyses to then inform our organizing, right? How do we take that to and listen to that. Um, I think that's part of it. Then the second thing is that not only have organizers, to use Charles Blow's language, like run into a wall, people have created responses to that. Not, again, through policy proposals, through ballot measures, through creating whole organizations, street violence interrupting programs, all of that. I've seen so many organizations and experiments 
flourish because people want and are excited about being responsive to the critiques of abolition that they receive as a response of the 2020 uprising. So I think that is so, so, so exciting to me. And isn't everything new? But abolition and defund just hit the mainstream two years ago. And think about all that's been accomplished just in those two years, right? And again, that's in the legacy of decades of people who've been trying to experiment with this work. So for example, there was someone at some event I went to, I guess maybe now a year ago, year and a half ago, and they were like, you know, these abolition people, they don't take seriously the tension with like survivors who have people who are incarcerated. Well, if you were reading Critical Resistance's conversation with Insight in the late 90s and early 2000s, you would see that that debate has been happening for 20 years since. 20 years, you just found out. And so I think political education is so important because you assume because you don't know something, it doesn't exist or that is not there. And so I think that there has been concrete responses to those answers, concrete experiments to those answers. There has been an appreciation for people saying, you know, we, we want to know how this is going to work. And the reason why we have to keep saying defund and abolish alongside all of these other responses is because the police would just sabotage whatever we do. The police, I hate to break into anyone here, <laughs> they're not excited about street violence interrupted programs unless it's run through them. They're not. It threatens their credibility. It threatens their legitimacy. It threatens their funding. So in St. Louis right now, when we were, well not right now, but a few years ago, when we were trying to close the rec house, one thing that actually St. Louis, one of the um, organizations that was put, uh, was organizing for this initiative, they were like, how are we going to be responsive to like the black on black crime? And then we had a conversation. We was like, well, how about we say, let's try street violence interrupters in some of these neighborhoods. And the people who were most angry about that were the police. Were the police. When the Black Panthers and the Young Lords were trying to do free breakfast programs in Chicago, guess who went in and raided and destroyed the food? Who? The police. The police. The police. Um, Marion Powell shared this really incredible article from, I think, the early 80s of the um, um, crime was dropping um, in Boston to historic lows. And the police and firefighters, they, they colluded to set fires and vandalize different parts of the city to drive funding to make sure they can get um, um, more funding for police to get them hired, right? You know, if you read Our Enemies in Blue, what is that? There's a whole record of police who spray, who spray paint graffiti and um, rival gang territories after truces, after truces, to give them jobs. So it, it's so, so, so infuriating when I hear people say, well, let's do all the social services we need, and then we can defund the police. So I'm like, no, 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 no. These things have to happen at the same time, over time, because otherwise, we're just going to be going in a circle. And it's not just social services that we need, we need a radical redistribution of wealth. And we can't radically redistribute wealth, we have police who are protecting the wealth. <laughs> you can't do that. Um, I don't even know if that answered your question, but that's like, <laughs> that's the long story. Um, so there, there's, um, I'm, glad you, I'm glad you mentioned the, the long tradition of thinking in abolitionism and how much of, how much of your research was about discovering very sophisticated and very thought out analysis, political mm -hmm. analysis that's still relevant today. 
Um, and there's something you said in the intro to the book that I highlighted because I kept coming back to it when I was thinking about the scope of this book, which is, which is personal, but it's actually really expansive in terms of all the things you talk about. Um, and you wrote, abolition is important to me, but not abolition alone, but not abolition alone. I try my best to study abolition alongside other paradigms, such as feminism, decolonization, and internationalism. Understanding abolition's relationship to capitalism is also essential to our liberation. And while the, you know, the cover of this book, the police car flame with flowers, it's gonna get us to think about police violence and police killings. Um, I think this book also helps us understand abolitionism in the context of indigenous rights, mm -hmm. transgender justice, climate justice, housing, um, and we're here at the U.S. Socialism Conference, right? So all of those sectors are critical to changing the material conditions of an inequitable capitalist society, right? So how does engaging in abolitionist politics yeah. help us bring about a socialist future? Mm -hmm. And what does this rich political tradition that you are now a part of mm -hmm. um, offer us in this time of overlapping and cascading crises of, and, uh, in the capitalist system? Yeah, no, that's an that's an important question. Um, I I have been following the Amazon labor organizing. Have y'all been following that? It's so fun. It's so fun. It's like amazing. It's like labor is lit right now in a way that it hadn't been in the mainstream for a long time. Um, and just that's a couple of days ago, I have siblings who work at Amazon. Three of my siblings, well, now one because two have been fired because they were pickers and they were picking too slow. So now I have one sibling who works at Amazon. And so there were um, these videos on Chris Smalls, um, the president of Amazon Labor Union, on his um, on his feed of the police lining up to protect Amazon from the labor organizers who are trying to get, you know, wages increase, right. trying to get the teeth clean, trying to see the doctor when their stomach and their heart hurts. The police are lining up to not to protect the laborers, right, to protect Amazon. And DC, where I live, there's a new partnership between Amazon and the police. Have y'all heard about this yet? No. Oh, let me tell you. No. There is a partnership between Amazon and the police now. So that instead of your packages going on your porch and being no. subject to like uh, porch pirates, which is <laughs> I don't know who came up with that, but if you are a part of porch pirates, um, you can now pick up your Amazon package from your um, local friendly police station. So, so, oh, also, the police steal. The police steal. 
lose money and then it's caught up in the courts. It's it's a mess. The police are thieves, right? And so, but again, it's seen as a legitimate factor. Another thing that that's happening in DC, and I think that's happened a couple other places, police will just offer you a free camera to put on your house, and they'll just watch your yard. They'll do the surveillance as long as you let them have the feet. Again, presenting themselves to solutions to social crises like burglary. Why do people break into each other's houses? Who's breaking into each other's houses? So these are some of the questions I try to work through in the book. And actually one of my biggest criticisms of the book is that I, I focus so much sometimes on root causes. When actually Naomi's work talks about this, Marie Gashoff's work talks about this, we don't have to get to the root causes of all of the crises that we have in order to have to get closer to a socialist future, right? There are like lots of policies, lots of laws, the expansion of the police state, but it's not just because the root causes are like really, really bad for harm, right? These things were happening because of all these other like policy reasons, legitimacy reasons. It's not because people were just stealing more, just killing more, and so that's. I don't get to ask that, but that's a critique. I'm like, man, I hope people don't think that we have to solve all of these problems first before we can undo like the crisis we have now, because that's that's not the that's not the case. That's not the case. Um, and so when I hear President Biden say, you know, we're gonna give, we're gonna put a hundred thousand more cops on the streets, you know, we're not gonna defund the police, we're gonna fund the police, you know, fund the police. He's so happy about that. At the same time, a lot of the people who voted for Trump, voted for Biden did it as an anti-fascist vote. <laughs> do y'all hear these people? Do y'all have some friends like that? This is an anti-fascist vote. And it's like, wow, if you think fascism is rising, why are you letting your candidate, I don't know, increase the police state? It seems like a really bad time to have more police funded in Florida right now. <laughs> or, and, and is anyone here from the Bay? The, the city council meetings where people are trying to fight and get housing for people, you have the police showing up and regulating the meetings in city council, in our in city council, in city council. So this is the state that we're in, right? And so I think that there's lots of socialist futures, lots of abolitionist futures that are possible. What I was nervous is that people were really excited to identify the abolitionists and not have these broader critiques of why we have, or uh, critiques or analyses rather, about why we have police and prisons and all these systems in the first place. And it's to protect private property, it's to protect social relations, it's to protect imaginary borders, all to maintain and concentrate wealth, right? To concentrate um, white supremacist power, to concentrate patriarchy, right? These systems have to be undermined constantly, 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 and the police are the force that maintains them. Um. I want, to, I want to talk a little bit more about what history teaches us, but before, side note, your mom was a comedian, did she yes, teach a comedian, yes, right? Yes, You can yes, tell yes. by Deborah. <laughs> I, I think if you ever do like a special, like a Netflix special or something like that on this, you should call it like Torch Pirates or something like that. Torch Pirates! <laughs> <laughs> right? And then, I mean, I mean, you know, comedy can be really good political education. Just oh, that's um, true. That's true. You have to pay some of these loans back. Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> Well, I went from 120 to 110. <laughs> <laughs> um, oh, guess what? No, I went to 100 dollars Pell Grant recipient. Never mind. Now I'm doing math. No, 120 to. Uh, <laughs> a little bit, huh? Yeah. 
Um, but no, but speak, speaking of the of, of the of the of the tradition of this type of analysis and, and the black radical tradition as well, um, in which abolition is squarely um, rooted, I wanted to talk about the part of the book where you're talking about um, Du Bois, Anno Davis, and abolition democracy. Um, I think it's a really interesting section. Um, and specifically, you talk about what you came to realize about, I guess, the treacherous territory we have to navigate when you're trying to implement abolition on top of systems of capitalism and colonialism. And I just was hoping you could explain a little bit about the, quote, allegiance to capitalism among abolitionists, end quote, during the Reconstruction era that you described, and, and how you think that's relevant to our abolition struggle today. Yeah, that was honestly the scariest part of the book to write. Mm. The scariest part. Because um, I I don't know if I fully agree with part of what Angela Davis said about Du Bois' conception of abolition democracy. And I think that's okay. It's just scary. <laughs> but it's okay. It's like, oh yeah, we don't have to agree. I don't agree with it. Half the stuff is in the Bible. But I'm like, yeah, I guess I'm a Christian. So it's, it's okay. Um, yeah, that part was really, really scary because I found the boys to be quite critical of abolitionists. Quite critical. He said, you know, these were noble, good-hearted, white liberals who were so committed to ending this destructive and moral institute for slavery. But they neglected to see the pitfalls of capitalism, and they had an allegiance to Pennsylvania Steel, right? So he's criticizing their commitment to capitalism while affirming their noble quest to end slavery. And he said they didn't realize the connection, right? So I actually think that abolition is quite neutral, like imagination. These things can be quite neutral. You can abolish lots of things, right? It doesn't automatically mean it's a good project, right? It's like, yeah, you can tear things down, you can build them up. So unfortunately, I do think a, a version of abolition democracy happened. I just think that the capitalists won big. You know, that's 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 what I think. Um, and then what I found again into some deep communist literature were all these really interesting critiques of W. B. Du Bois. And I, when I think about like my heroes, I'm like, okay, who who critiques these people from the left, especially? Or like like I've been looking for critiques of James and. Um, um, James and Grace Lee Boggs. I'm always curious, who's pushing them? Who said, well, you don't understand what the Black Panthers were trying to do, and you're kind of too harsh on them. Like, I, want, I love that kind of movement drama stuff, because it's politicized, and it's refreshing, and it's interesting. And these people, they don't become deities, right? They become people we engage with the political struggle. So I'm like, who's critiquing um, um, Black Reconstruction and W. Du Bois? And one of the critiques that I found is random pamphlet was like, yeah, you know, W.B. Du Bois, when he talked about abolition, he was almost consumed with what these white liberals were doing. Mm -hmm. And even though it was important that they had, a, um, that he, you know, criticized them for being committed to capitalism, he didn't talk about the aftermath of Reconstruction where black people were, like, taking land and redistributing it themselves, where they were working, you know, in solidarity with, like, indigenous people and trying to figure out how do we share, how do we commune, how do we live together. And there were all these interesting radical projects flourishing across the South where people were trying to actually experiment with something more closely to what we, what we this generation says when we say abolition democracy. And I found that fascinating, fascinating, fascinating. And so I think history has a lot to teach us there. It means that you could be an abolitionist, you know, as um, 
Roxanne Dunbar Ortiz explains and indigenous people of the United States and be committed to colonizing Hawaii. You can be in for the eradication of slavery and for the colonization of indigenous people. Like all of these things are all the, are all happening alongside each other, which is why it's so important for us to have robust analyses that cut across um, so many different paradigms. I think that quote you read earlier, that is sort of what I had in mind. And the political homes that I have, right, like in Dream Defenders, like they're talking about abolition, but we're also thinking about socialism and feminism and internationalism and disability justice, right? Because we have to understand these analyses if we're going to not only dream of a free world, but actually build and construct that free world. And it's going to be messy, it's going to be complicated, and people are going to be mad, and people are going to be happy, but it's important that we try to understand them across the board. And so I don't want us to be neutral abolitionists. I want us to be the good kind. I want to be the lit kind. I want to be like a good abolitionist. And I think what that means is taking seriously the critiques, the dreams, the concerns of other kinds of people who are trying to get free through whatever primary paradigm they use. Yeah, and I, I mean, it's interesting what you say about how these, how the analysis needs to cut across because I think, and I'll speak for myself, when your political development is really nascent and you're just like learning some of these things, it's like you're adding on, right? I'm a feminist and I'm an abolitionist, yes. and, I'm, and it just kind of stacks them up, and yes. I'm all these things, and yes. then you can kind of have a multicolored sticker that says <laughs> how many you have. The catch-all sign yeah. in the front yard. Exactly. It is the long sign of your political education. But None I, of them say capitalism. I'm yeah, never yeah. seen one of them. I believe no. capitalism is that. Property is totally <laughs> makes no sense. Um, <laughs> yes. uh, but, I, but I'm curious about because because we I, and I, you don't have to just talk about your work with the Dream Defenders. But I am curious about the project of developing that analysis in a more robust way, right? Um, because because you know you chose becoming abolitionists, right? So there's a certain frame you're using, right? But you're you're intentionally making this point over and over. I mean, there were times where I was just like, oh, now we're talking about climate justice. And like, oh, now we're talking. Oh, in the book. In the book, oh, yeah, right? Yeah. It's it's a pretty it's a, it's expansive in its scope. If you're going in just thinking it's going to be Derek talk, like ranting around police and prisons, it's there, but it's not the way you think it is. Yeah. Um, and so I'm curious about how you do how you go about doing that. We teased that a little bit with this conversation this morning with Three Defenders about the process of doing that in a collective form because yeah. I think that's the way to do it, right? It has to be a conversation, but. Tell, talk a little bit about that process and what, what you think is sort of the approach to doing that, the need for doing that. Yeah, well, one thing that's in the book, so there's a chapter on climate change, there's a chapter on like community-based community violence, there's a chapter on disability justice. And one thing that I try to do is thread policing and prisons through those chapters. So you'll see that, oh yeah, as the world gets hotter, as there's more climate migration, guess who's going to show up and be arresting people? Guess who's going to make sure that you know, some people get called looters and then some people get escorted out of cities. The police are going to be the mechanism by which a lot of these um, these um, crises that we have, you know, that they get solved or not solved, but addressed rather. Um, and that's just going to happen more and more over time. So I try to weave these um, things through because it's real. It's real. I think. Yeah, that's why we all kind of should be climate activists. I mean, I, I just think that's true, and I'm trying to learn how to be better at that. And one person who's pushed me, now I'll talk about him today, is Will Lawrence. Oh my God! Oh, 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 o
See, we have solar energy. Oh, yeah. <laughs> we could have just kept going. The lights could have just stayed on. Um, yeah, so I tried to connect um, the expansiveness. Um, yeah, because police and prisons unfortunately cut through and capitalism cut through all of those issues that you know, that we face. Um, and I, all those issues are really real to me. And I also try to be honest and say, this is stuff I'm still learning too. I have lots of, you know, political maturation to go. I have lots of personal maturation to go. Uh, you know, I have lots of things that I haven't even learned yet, which is so exciting. It's so exciting. I think about how like wrong I was 10 years ago about things. I mean, stuff that went like viral. And I was like, oh, that was not right. That was wrong. And yeah, when it's easy, to conflate popularity with accuracy, yeah. it's like that's just something that can happen, unfortunately. And so, yeah, I, I think that I tried to show a level of humility. It's like, yeah, I was wrong. People had, you know, these ideas about, you know, disability, and we were trying to get it right. And then we got pushed by people who were in disability justice movements for a longer than we were. And so I tried to show and tease out that messiness in real time because it's something that's constantly on, it's constantly ongoing. And so, yeah, I think the book is called Becoming Abolitionist because the title that I really wanted was taken. And it's so sad because the book that t took it is not a good book. <laughs> and it's not a good book because the person lied about the text. Um, and now has a whole set of other issues um, with, like, ethics boards. And so, no, I'm not going to say the name of the book. No, I'm not going to say the name of the book. No, we got to go Google it. Like, if I have 
like, what about your taxes? It's like, oh, it's like different things. I got kids, I gotta, you know, claim. There's like all expenses. There's there's so many different levels that we have to like take seriously. And we spend lots and lots and lots of time just taking for granted that police have to be here because we don't have an answer about violence. Well, how about y'all fun answers about violence? How do we figure it out? So is it is it is it that we don't know or is it a lack of will and a lack of courage and a lack of imagination? And so I'm excited to, you know, to be with people to figure out, you know, Dream Defenders had this, I don't know if I can share this, but Dream Defenders <laughs> like, one thing we talked about with the student debt cancellation campaign was like, wow, a lot of people who started Dream Defenders or were early members were in college when it happened. And much of their organizing had been around criminal justice, getting people arrested, to getting things shut down, getting you know um, police defunded, trying to close prisons, trying to cut incarceration in Florida. And it's like, well, we also have this incredible opportunity to eliminate student debt for lots of people, including black people who bear, poor black people who bear the, bear the disproportionate brunt of that. And what, guess what that also does? It could energize people around socialism. Because they can say, oh wow, our government can do stuff like that? This feels good, more. We want more of this. This feels good, keep it going, right? And so, wow, even though historically we have been doing this kind of work, this is an opportunity for us to like, you know, fight for a, a show a commitment to the socialist policies that we also believe in. And then you're gonna learn all the liberals are like, oh, it's socialism for the rich. I'm like, no, 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 you're missing the plot. No, this is good, don't talk about it that way. Like this is this is exciting. We have to figure out how to get more of it. But it's we you experiment and you can say, damn, well, maybe we should have fought for it more than just that, you know? But it's it's iterative and it's messy and it requires time. Um, but yeah, you know, popcorn that comes on the stove is better than popcorn that comes in the microwave. You know? I just made that up. I don't even know if that's good or not. <laughs> So 
I, do, I wanted to thank you from not the bottom of my heart, because that's too much, but <laughs> somewhere, <laughs> somewhere in there, there's room for And I also just wanted to say that, you know, how, how, how wonderful this book is, because it is, it is really, it is, you know, challenging Angela Davis, like, in terms well, of... Well, not the whole not book, book. Like, <laughs> three sentences, like, I was in the laundry list some stuff, I know. <laughs> okay, 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 okay. Yeah. you can't leave with... Talking about, no, talking about family <laughs> and personal trauma, talking about, you know, um, things that are very personal and very meaningful to you, and contextualizing them in this way, I think it's really accessible for a lot of people, I think it draws a lot of people into this project, and I think... Um, it, it did catch me off guard. I was like, oh, this is actually about Derrida. Um, and it's also about me and us. And, um, and I, think that, I, think, I think that it is a, it's a wonderful contribution to uh, political education and to, to left literature. So I want to thank you for that and give you a little. that talk to you, so I'm not going to try to get deeper than I already have. Um, but I want to have some fun, and I want to do a quick speed round. And I'm going to give you a name or a thing, and you have to tell me, it's like Asada taught me, it's got to be like, like, blank taught me that abolition blank, or blank taught me something about abolition, okay? Okay. All right? And, and engage that you can feel free to be a little bit funny about this, but sometimes you're not going to be, okay? So, okay. All right, ready? No. You have like, you know, 20 seconds for each one. All right. Um, Robin Kemp. Taught me that um, abolition is about love. Mm -hmm. Oh, come on. <laughs> <laughs> the chapter is literally called love and abolition. That's I mean, true. I don't know. Being a lawyer.
wearing signs like justice and freedom on their jerseys during the uprising while in the bubble. To quote Chris Broussard, which is one of my favorite NBA analysts for any of you who watch sports stuff, I don't want to see a bunch of black guys running back and forth wearing white supremacy on their jerseys. That's all I got. this episode subscribe to our podcast and to the haymarket books youtube channel where events like this one are hosted live and don't forget to check out haymarketbooks.org